Happy New Year and welcome to Watershed's January podcast. This month I'm joined again by two Bristol-based film writers and critics, Sven de Hunt and Tara Judah. Uh, welcome back. Last month you might have heard that we looked at the year 2017 in film. This podcast we're going to look forward to 2018 and see what sort of highlights uh, we have coming up for us. Some of the films, I think we might have seen some films that are opening uh, this year, but obviously not everything. And we're going to have a talk through what some of our highlights might be. But the start of the year is always the awards corridor, as mm, it has become yeah. known in the business. And I know you enjoy that very much, Tara. Absolutely. I, th I think likening film to a corridor is a great start <laughs> for thinking about engagement and themes. It's a dark <laughs> corridor and there's a light that's just been struck up. They're all just cluttered together. But the awards corridor nonetheless, and uh, Oscars and BAFTAs will be coming up. Um, there's already some films that we've talked about from last year and in last month's podcast, but a lot of the, the titles start hitting the cinema screens. And I guess first up is the somewhat controversial new Ridley Scott film, All the Money in the World. Controversial, maybe that's too strong a word, but it's, it's quite extraordinary that it starred Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey has somewhat fallen from grace after the allegations. The film was already in the can. Yeah, uh, I, I Ridley think Scott's that is... made the extraordinary decision to, mm -hmm. to film, to basically take Kevin Spacey out of it and refilm the scenes. Yeah, I think that's incredible that um, like an 80-year-old filmmaker three weeks before release decided, like he looked at the press and he looked at the prospects and he decided to like cut space, he replaced him with Christopher Plummer. And yeah, a couple of weeks ago, there was then all of a sudden like a trailer for the new All the Money in the World with Christopher Plummer. Yeah. So he turned that around really quickly. And he also only just announced that film in like April or May. So that's how fast that really Scott can still work. And it's a Scott in minor key, so it's not something like Alien Covenant or some a real mm. big blockbuster. Mm. It's like more small, a smaller story. I think that the, I mean, one, I think that the decision speaks for the cynical part of me, which is like, I know how Hollywood works. It, the film will lose less money if it replaces Kevin Spacey with Christopher Plummer than it would, like, in the costs of reshooting. Actually, it won't be as much as it would have lost if it went, if it opened with Kevin Spacey following the allegations. And I think the the less cynical side of me hopes that we'll actually see that, you know, more of this sort of behaviour ensue, that, the pit, that after all these sorts of really grave allegations come out, that these people won't just be continually on our screens, that actually this will mean some changes in Hollywood. Um, I, I don't know whether or not I, I believe that necessarily, like deep Deep down, I think that somehow we'll kind of like this wave will come and go. But I would like to think that things in Hollywood will start changing. Yeah. Um, that that's would that would be the positive effect. The film was already dropped as well, mm. so that's never going to yeah. find distribution, never going to find the light of day either. So. I mean, I think there is that interesting thing where it's the, the, the box office potential. Mm. And, um, you know, that is going to determine a lot of decisions. Well, it determines every decision really in yeah. Hollywood. Um, I, I'm not sure if the decision was that decision was primarily Rid Ridley Scott's that it is, is 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 cynical. He he certainly has in interviews has said that he he didn't um, he didn't feel that all the work that everybody has put into this film should be damaged by mm. one person's you know these accusations of things that have happened not relating to anything to do with Ridley Scott's film. But also interestingly, 
I gather he wanted to have Christopher Plummer in the part originally. And Kevin Spacey like, more of a box office. Yeah. And I think, you know, R Ridley Scott, you do not cross Ridley Scott is my impression. And as you say, 80-year-old, but he doesn't come across mm. um, in any way affected by, by age. And he's obviously thought, to hell with this. I'm, you know, go back to my original plan um, and, and get this film out. Haven't watched the trailer though. You say it's in a minor key. I mean, the trailer is just so uh, brilliantly dynamic, um, and again shows why Ridley Scott is really one of the sort of great, one of the great film directors. I think. So that kicks off the year. That's that's fifth of January. It's a, a hell of a start. Uh, coming up, um, other titles that may well be in the awards bidding is Martin Madonna's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I'd like to see that, not just because it's got a ridiculous title, but um, because Frances McDormand is in it, and I really enjoy her performances. It's, it's got a ridiculous title, but you remember it. <laughs> yeah, you well, know, you're really, you, quite. You, you, work, you work at it, <laughs> and then you remember it, and it sticks. Yeah, I've not seen it, but I think it's a film that's also very timely, because it's about a woman who's really angry about the incompetence of men, which is sort of like was sort of like a theme last year, and, and I think that sort of carries over this year. She, she's pretty angry. much the theme of my life. <laughs> she's angry, and she takes revenge. Mm -hmm. um, and, and she is, um, Frances McDormand is fantastic in this film. I, I saw it la last year at one of the festivals, and she really has created one of the sort of great on-screen female characters, real foul-mouthed, kick-ass, take-no-prisoners. Um, and, you know, it's definitely up there with Marge in Fargo, just is a really, really strong character. I'm, I think it's a film of two halves. I think the first half is absolutely brilliant, and it, it sort of it sort of wanes in the second half. But there's enough in it to really, mm. uh, and it's Martin Madonna back on sort of in Bruges form as well. So um, de definitely a, a strong start to the year there. Um, Steven Spielberg's uh, back on screen with uh, the Post. Yeah, the Post is sort of like his story um, about how the Pentagon Papers revealed sort of like the cause of Vietnam. Um, and although this is a film in the 1970s, obviously it tells just as much of our time today as it did about the 1970s, because it is about freedom of speech and the freedom of press, and especially under the administration of Trump, I think it's a very yeah. important film. I'd be interested to see if he can refrain from having it overscored, because it seems like the kind of film that would do better from a pared-back score, but mm. Spielberg really has trouble letting silence speak in cinema. Mm. Um, I think when he did Lincoln, there was only 40 seconds in like the entire film that isn't scored. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not sold on him when he's not doing blockbusters. That's just reminded me is that um, a couple of highlights uh, coming up later in the year at Colston Hall in Bristol. Um, they're doing Jaws and Indiana Jones with live music. Of course, Jaws, memorably, um, has a very minimal score. It's, that's why it's such a good film. That's, if you go back through Spielberg's work, Jaws stands out because actually he lets the film speak without overscoring it. Yeah. I think that's something, unfortunately, he suffers from later in his career. But the post um, feels like it might be Spielberg doing politics full, full front. Yeah, and that's, that's always how I like Spielberg. I think his last good film is probably 2006's Munich. Uh, and that's already quite a while ago, and, and I think that was also a film that looked back at politics from the 1970s, also telling a very timely story, and I think he's just back at it again with The Post. But it feels like he's, he's, he's addressing American yeah. politics, and, and Trump in particular, obviously, with this. And uh, Meryl Streep is the publisher of The Post, um, and Tom Hanks is the editor, so two 
you know, towering uh, figures in Hollywood there that will be coming, uh, kind of performing. And also, it's just a very good um, supporting cast. Where I think Sarah Paulson is in it, Alison Brie, um, Bob Odenkirk, uh, some yeah, really good supporting mm. TV actors who are now um, doing great work in the screen for Spielberg. And Alexander Payne is back with uh, Downsizing, starring Matt Damon and Christopher Waltz. A really brilliant premise, this film, which is that um, we, we have found the, the technology to reduce people to miniature, thus saving on um, goods and, and uh, appliances because everything's reduced in size. The incredible shrinking man type feel to it, and the kind of, but it's not sci fi. It actually feels extraordinary like oh yeah this kind of makes sense actually <laughs> you know if you, could just <laughs> if you could just find the sort of science we could actually do this and so it, um, it's really very quirky and very engaging um, film but again dealing with a, a topical thing about you know how, how can so many people exist in the planet and you know what is it we're going to do so it's a kind of parable um, from how, how we're treating planet earth so the new eco-warrior film <laughs> it's very much an eco-warrior film and there are, there, there, where it ends up almost in a kind of commune type uh, setting I think we'll, we'll play well to a Bristol audience and it's sort of <laughs> alt hippie radicalness Bristol's about to be downsized. Britain's, <laughs> Bristol's, Britain's about to be downsized, did you say? No, Bristol. We'll just become really miniature and yeah. put ourselves on the side somewhere. Well, I thought you were talking about I thought we were going to have to Brexit there. <laughs> Later this month, uh, Bristol's very own Arvin Animation and Early Man, Nick Park, um, back directing. True to uh, Arvin form, this is um, stop frame animation, plasticine. And it's going back to early man. Uh, from I've only seen the trailers, but it, it looks the kind of perfect slapstick comedy in terms of timing. That, yeah, and also um, just inventive storytelling, how they how they always do it. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to it. It's also in the um, more independent American scene. Richard Linklater's got a new film, Sven. Yeah, so he has made a sort of like a spiritual sequel uh, to How Ashby's The Last Detail, uh, the film with Jack Nicholson in the 1970s. And he has basically taken like the three soldiers from the first film and now he's depicting them as war veterans in their 50s and in their 60s. And they're portrayed by Lawrence Fishburne, Fishburne and Brian Cranston and Steve Carell. Um, and yeah, it's a very muted, uh, subtle story, which, are, which is always, uh, which is something I really admire from like Rich Linklater. Yeah, and I thought it was really, really good, really tender and really gentle, really well observed with like a lot of like love for his characters. Film there's also really good moments of improvisation. Steve Carell plays a soldier who fought in Vietnam and now he has lost his son in the Iraq war um, and he wants to give him like a proper burial. And basically the film is like a road movie and you follow these three veterans, how they're talking about life and loss and America um, and how nobody's really able to make it great again and so yeah it's a very interesting film so that comes out at the end of January. The, the interesting thing about the American films that we've talked about are that they, they, they do seem to be reflecting on the sort of state of America in different ways we've mentioned the Spielberg in the post and the, the link later there there does seem to be a kind of a bit of a soul searching uh, that that always happens whenever like the politics go to like a yeah. bad period. Like arts need to art need to reflect mm. that, and you will see that in cinema and in music. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, I think anytime politics change, there has to be a kind of examination of how things are. And also just because that that always means huge upheaval because it takes so long for policies to be mm. instated, for them to take effect. And looking um, more worldwide, um, in early in January is the new film from the White God director, the Hungarian filmmaker. Uh, oh, I loved White God. Yeah, yeah. Um, like that was that. the that was the film about that the, was great. the the pack of dogs. Mm. Um, yeah, in Budapest. Uh, yeah, basically an allegory for like the refugee crisis. Yeah. Well, he he continues the mm. the dealing with refugees, and th this is less allegorical, but uh, deals with um, you know sort of refugee unstated uh, refugee situation, but does take it out into kind of more spiritual sense of somebody who's a, a refugee who may uh, who shows extraordinary powers and there's a kind of religious overtones to it but the there is some cinematography in it that is just extraordinary which he uses to um, show you this these kind of powers and it is it is visually quite an extraordinary film and that's Jupiter's moon because I don't think you mentioned the title did I say oh yeah that's Jupiter's moon um, coming up early in the year uh, but also the Russian director Andrei Vagintsev, um, who's Leviathan, uh, people may know from a couple of years back. And his new film is Loveless, which is um, a very intense and stark look at the, the, the kind of emotional emptiness in, at the heart of Russian uh, life. Well, he doesn't make light cinema. <laughs> he certainly, he certainly does. He certainly does not, and he's continu he's continued in that um, quite formidably. Yeah, what Andrei Sergeyev is really good at is to look at like society as a whole through the prism of only like a handful of people. Mm. And in this story, yeah, he, in this film, he tells the story of an embittered couple who have split up, but now they sort of have to come together to find their son who went missing. And yeah, he examines sort of like Russia's lack of. They're forced together. They're forced. They together. don't come together. They, they, <laughs> They're forced, they, they forced together. together. And yeah, he tells a story of like a lack of empathy. Mm and how, how selfish and self-obsessed mm. these people are. Yeah. Um, but it's quite interesting, just like Leviathan, it's quite critical about the state of Russia, mm. but it is um, Russia's submission for the Oscars yeah. uh, this year, so yeah. that is interesting to see. Uh, and and one out. of the most extraordinary endings, I think, in, in uh, cinema, I'm just going to leave it at that. Mm. The, the, delighted to say that there will be a retrospective of Zvinskev's work that we'll be showing this month and hoping very much that he will be coming to talk about his work um, here at Watershed, which I'm very excited about. Marvellous. People remember um, the return, the banishment. I don't think you could ever forget the return. No, I mean, it's just an amazing, <laughs> an an astonishing amazing film. debut. When you think about it as a <laughs> debut film. He seems to really have stepped quite comfortably into the Tarkovsky status as a filmmaker mm. that is making... Uh, really poetic, incredible images, but also commenting on the state of Russia. Uh, so very excited about that. Now, there's a film I know that you, Tara, are very much looking forward to. You've seen it, and it's coming up in March, I believe. It's it's Warwick Thornton's new film, Sweet Country. I cannot wait to see this again. Uh, this film is just incredible and if you don't go see Sweet Country you're going to miss one of the most remarkable films that comes out this year. It's an Australian film so Warwick Thornton did Samson and Delilah which people might remember. Um, Sweet Country you know has this inc incredible 
wealth of, of stories to tell. So, you know, it's a, a, about colonial and kind of post-colonial stories. So that sort of awkward time where I guess the slavery was was coming to an end, um, certain parts of the slavery in Australia of indigenous people, um, but that they weren't completely free. And obviously, I mean, you know, that they're not completely free today. So that injustice carries on. But you can certainly see the threads. And what Warwick Thornton does is is beautiful with his camera. Um, he's incredibly good at capturing the landscape and the way in which the physical buildings that the 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 kind of you know colonial presence have imposed and built upon the landscape and you see that through the way in which he just shows them on screen and then then shoes come walking onto the kind of patio or the veranda which is on top of this deep red earth the way shadows are cast throughout the film um, there's an absolutely incredible scene where I think Warwick Thornton deals with rape in a way that I wish more filmmakers would pay attention to. So obviously you can't um, remove from the history of Australian history the fact that white men raped black women. That is the history of colonialism. Um, but you, you don't have to show it and what you can do is, is something different. And so he has this incredible way of just showing the structure that is built and just by closing all of the windows and doors and leaving a black screen so that really there's this sense of, um, of it's really deep and aching of the metaphor for removal, for blacking out history, you know, the history wars in Australia rage well into the 80s and are taking place again now, um, for, you know, the idea of the stolen generation, of all the things and all the absence um, of Indigenous history that has taken place in Australia is just wrapped up so beautifully in this one moment and in this movement in the film. It, it's an incredible story. I, I cried my eyes out um, and I, I think that it's just one of the most remarkable films and one of the greatest films about Australian history that there is. So I, I mean I really, especially because people in Britain forget that your history and our history is exactly the same, you definitely need to go see this. Mm. And that opens in March this year. What about uh, British films that are coming up? We, we talked last year about, you know, there's a growing strength in, in British cinema. We're seeing some more of the fruits of that coming Can't up. Can't wait for Cleo Barnard's new film, yeah. Dark River. I haven't seen it yet, but I I mean, I, th I thought The um, Selfish Giant was just an incredible film, left me speechless, watched mm. it multiple times, speechless at the end of every viewing. So can't wait to see what her, her new mm. film will be. And another great British female director, Lynn Ramsey, I mean, her new film coming up, You Were Never Really Here. Has anybody seen it? Yes. I haven't. You've seen it? I have, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so I don't want to put anyone off, but it's probably the most distressing experience I've ever had in a cinema. I mean, I, I literally was... Purposefully distressing. It's purpose... It? it is. It's purposefully distressing. Um, but, but, I mean, it was really distressing. <laughs> I want to really emphasise that. Sometimes films are purposefully distressing and they don't succeed um, but I, I I could feel my heart racing the entire time through the film I physically was clenched in my seat I had a very visceral reaction to this film um, the subject matter that it deals with is is you know really difficult um, it does have this kind of allusion to sex trafficking ring so it has a character played by Joaquin Phoenix who is a sort of good bad guy you're not really sure how good how bad um, and he's kind of chasing other bad guys to, to kind of save young women who are in um, precarious situations that's also just so loaded with all of the kind of allegations from Hollywood him having worked with Casey Affleck on the film that 
you know, I, I'm still here or I'm not really here. I don't know, they have a similar title. No, <laughs> that film? I'm still here. Well, I'm not there yet, <laughs> so, which I always get confused. Yeah. So, the, but there's, there is, the, you know, just so much in that film, um, and and the music and the beats and the pacing mm. is relentless. Um, she, she's an exceptional filmmaker, but I personally found the film actually a bit too distressing. Um, I'm not sure what kind of a disposition you need to have to go into this film, but certainly be warned that it is not easy viewing. And of course, the music is done by Johnny Greenwood. The music's uh, great. Who's, who she who she's uh, worked with, um, uh, in part, and, and, and again, his mu his music is as intense as the film. And it's, it's like it's like it goes into your veins, it, 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 the music, it and it, it and it it's, and it's like it changes your heartbeat it, into the pulse of the music. I, it's the I only way I can it was describe so it. So brilliant seeing. I, I've loved Lynn Ramsey's work. I mean, Ratcatcher is again one of the great. Um, debut films and I was so thrilled to see her deliver such a powerful intense piece of filmmaking and it comes in at like 85 minutes um, it's so tight as a film but yeah there's so much in it, it, it it's it, it felt to me like a, 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 as a sort of update of Taxi Driver um, um, Scorsese's Taxi Driver that, that there are Themes that she's ex that, that are being explored, which have got parallels. Uh, you say, you know, kind of character that you're not sure if you should like or dislike, underage prostitution. So there are similar themes, but but you know, there's no there's no sort of comparisons. I think beyond a subject matter, but she does it in such a um, unique way. And I was I, again, I was just so pleased to see her deliver something that was so powerful. You could actually read the film like um, David Cronenberg's reading of Taxi Driver, which is that Travis Bickle is an alien come to Earth to try and understand humanity and sexuality. And you could read Lynn Ramsey's you, you, film with the same you, weird Cronenbergian reading. Ab absolutely. This character could be an alien sent to Earth yeah. to try and understand yeah, yeah, what on Earth yeah. we're doing. That, for me, is um, a highlight of this, of this year. Paddy Considine's directing again with Journeyman. He is, yeah. Um, I, I got to say though, this film is manipulative in the, the in the way I don't like. So there, I mean that, that I've got to qualify that. There's manipulation in cinema, obviously, but sometimes I think that it's that a definition is definition of cinema. Exactly. Um, sometimes that's great, and I think that uh, filmmakers can do that with a really deft hand, so that it, it plays certain emotions. Um, and then I think there's kind of playing key heavy emotions, just really to get a response that is not really earned. And I'm, unfortunately, mm. I think that's what Constantine does in Journeyman. No, I think um, it's the opposite. I think Constantine. I think he's much better a film. I think he really strips back most of the emotional moments and he really lets the story speak of itself. And I think like the emotional punch, pun intended, is really well earned at the end of the film. Oh no, he I glosses over domestic no, violence, I, I don't really think he it's treats the female at, character at terribly in the film and just plays her for sympathy. He just, you know, he's got these images of like a child locked in a a, a tumble dryer and um, you know kind of domestic violence against the woman all played for these sorts of like shocking moments but he doesn't engage with the issues of domestic violence and and you know ab abuse of children and I just think that's really irresponsible. I, I'm kind of a Sven on this and uh, I think he's I'm not I'm not convinced he's successful with it but I think Considine is reaching for an exploration of masculinity which but at the has cost a, ha, of everything else. Has a, has a, which has an honesty to it. Uh, I think it's clumsy. 
I think he, I think it's clumsy at times. Um, but like Tyrannosaur, um, I think he is trying to explore a, a, a masculinity which is we, 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 and presents a masculinity which we don't uh, often see in cinema. And he's also subverting tropes that come with the genre. I think he's trying to do something different. And as you said, it is not successful, but for me, the film worked most of the part. Yeah, we're I don't think he does it well at all. We're going to discuss this near the time <laughs> with the audience when they come and see Journeyman. And of course, one film that is coming up, uh, Guillermo del Toro's Shape of Water. Yeah, I've I've seen uh, I've seen it, and I really like it. Uh, what I really like about Guillermo del Toro's work is that he's using fantasy elements and horror elements to explore something interesting, underlying themes of like guilt and possession and identity. He did that really well with Pan's Labyrinth, and I think this is maybe his best film since Pan's Labyrinth. Um, it tells a story about a mute cleaner played by Sally Hawkins in like the height of the Cold War in the 1960s, and she stumbles upon a tank with an with an aqua man, like uh, sort of like this. It's a creature from the Black Lagoon. It is a creature of the Black <laughs> Lagoon. Del, Del Toro has a passion for those universal yeah. films, and that passion really shines through. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it it could have been something like a whimsical fairy tale. For most of the time, it is that, but it is also so much more. It is, I think, a testament of, of love and not fitting in um, about a world that's changing. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting film. There are new films by two directors who I'm particularly fond of. One is Todd Haynes mm. and his new film Wonderstruck, and the other, uh, Ruben Ostlund, the Swedish director of Force Majeure, with his new film, The Square. I saw The Square and um, it's, it's a funny because obviously it, it was, you know, awarded at Cannes. Previously they planned to cut it and then obviously after it won the award they kind of changed their minds. But the first thing that you think after you've watched the film is, gee, they really should cut a, like but, half an hour out of this film. But it's such a brilliant, you think it's such a brilliant film, but yeah, could you just trim it down a little bit? That would be, that, I think it's, be great. I think it's not a brilliant film because it hasn't got that half hour cut out of it. I think yeah. it's a good film and I think it's got the potential to be a much better film. I think that's what's quite frustrating um, is, is that, you know, He's sort of been. He sort of let the jokes go on too long um, in the in the in the version that we we're going to get to see. Yeah. I mean, it, it you know it is funny. It's, it's provocative. It's provocative. You know, it's all of those things. But actually, ultimately, it didn't really stay with me that much. I have to say, I think it's a good film. The scene. And that's it. The scene at the dinner for all the sponsors in the glitterati in the art world because the, the film is about the art world. It's set in the art world. It's about a curator who's about to open a show and trying to get publicity for it and get himself into the all, so hilarious. all sorts of trouble. <laughs> all sorts of trouble, which are very current uh, is, you know, problems, mm. issues that it raises. But the scene with the actor who, who does a lot of performances in uh, Planet of the Apes and performs as a gorilla, and he does a performance as a, a piece of performance art as a gorilla, and I think I think Austin takes us as close as we can to screaming and shouting at the, the screen, tell him, do something about this. <laughs> Um, I, I, that's that's going to stay with me uh, for a long, long time. That that's that particular sequence. Yes, we'll we'll agree to disagree uh, mm. on the memorableness or not <laughs> of Ruben Austin's The Square. But but wonderstruck, Todd Haynes. Yeah. So in America, it's sort of like been dismissed as sort of like minor minor Todd Haynes. People have been saying like, yeah, it's quite soppy and sort of also emotionally 
manipulative. And, and what's wrong with soapy? Yeah, I, I don't really think there's anything wrong. And I think it's all right when done right. I, I, I think it's also like experimenting with films and different mm. forms of film. And in every film of every Todd Haynes film, you really feel that passion for cinema. Mm. And that's really true for Wonderstruck. So you have these two similar or two different stories, I mean. Mm. Um, both across different time periods. Across isn't different it? time periods. Yeah. Both um, about like mute or deaf, deaf children, how they sort of like find, find each other. And the way how it plays out feels a bit familiar, but I think it's too good of a film to just dismiss it. It's maybe my least favorite Todd Haynes film, but I think it's still very. Yeah, I agree film. with Sven. Actually, I love everything Todd Haynes does, and in that sense, this was a real disappointment because I think it's a real step down in terms of quality from his other work. But it's still markedly better than a lot of other well, stuff is, that is out is, there. This is, what so. was, this is what I was going to say. I mean, come on. I mean, so. Todd Haynes has set the bar high. He has, and, and, and I, I think, but that's that's a problem when you come to expect something from a filmmaker you love. Is that if I was judging this not as a Todd Haynes film. I'd say it's very good, but I think as a Todd Haynes film, there was a sense of disappointment. That said, I also think that I'm not its audience for the very first time ever. I think he's made a film that is not directed at me. I think it's directed at a younger audience. I'd be really interested to see how a, a younger audience responds and, and to this And by younger, work. I mean, we are, we are talking about... Um, what, sort of early teens? Yeah, definitely. Even, even younger than that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that this is not an early childhood, but like a 12 to mm. kind of maybe 17-year-old yeah. uh, age group that this is really directed at. And I, I would have loved to have seen this when I was that age. Yeah. And I'd love to know what that age group think of it. I, I, I'm interested in that as well. You don't, you don't often think about Todd Haynes as being for that sort of age group. And I think that's what he's made, actually, as a film for... Because uh, it's based on, isn't it? It's based on a picture book. Yeah, by Brian Selznick, who also wrote to Hugo, the, Martin, yes. uh, the book that was the inspiration for the Martin Scorsese film. Yeah. Yeah, I think Wonderstruck, it's a film about families, also for families. Yeah. And I think that is, yeah. Yeah, as Tara said, it's target, target audience. I would like to give a big shout out to Sandy Powell, the costume uh, designer, and particularly, uh, and also the set designers and everybody, because it's set in the 30s and the 70s. In the 1970s New York, I thought to myself, where have they found this bit of New York that looks exactly <laughs> like the 1970s? And the, the, the outfits that people... It, talking about taxi drivers, I felt as though he expected Travis Bickle to <laughs> sort of dri drive past. It was, it was an amazing re recreation, and these are, these are some... That attention to detail is something that, that, that Todd Haynes, with Sandy Pearl, who he's worked with um, a lot, the, the, the real loving care that's gone into the recreation. Yeah, yeah. And also maybe like a shout out to the cinematographer at Lackman, oh. who he always works with. Yeah. Um, he once again he's doing yeah. like, he's doing really really good work. Yeah. So our, our job for the for um, the is to revisit the Todd Haynes Wonderstruck because I, I as we're talking I'm thinking to myself no I need to go back and have a look yeah. at this film, this <laughs> film again. <laughs> I think it does require a second viewing. What well, 2017 we said was a strong year in cinema. Um, so strong. I was I was doing I did my list. And I came up with 30 films that could have kind of gone into a top 10 or a top 5. My 2017 list has grown even since the last time we talked because I've caught up You've with caught some up more with, films yeah. and they've yeah. added to the list. So, I mean, it's endless how good it was last year. So how's 2018 going to shape up then? How's that shaping up in Who terms knows? of... Who knows? But I think it's very reassuring to know that we have some really good filmmakers who are now mm. finishing films like Oscar Fahadi has a new film, Nuremberg Asylum has a new film. 
Paolo Sorrentino, Carol Morley is working mm. on new work. So that mm -hmm. is really reassuring to know that those films are coming out. There's a new Hirokazu Koreeda film, Koreeda is which coming out. for me mm -hmm. is enough to know that the year is worthwhile, <laughs> just because I'll get to see whatever that is. <laughs> and Orson Welles has a new film out as well. Tell us, tell us more. Yeah, a film that he worked on in the 1970s, and they've been trying to piece that together. Is ever this since. the other side of the wind? The other side of the wind, and now legendary Netflix, uh, film the great savior of cinema, has come on board <laughs> uh, to uh, plunge into money. Uh, on that bombshell, we shall see you in the cinema. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much.